Listen to challenging topics and insightful conversations. We don't just report the news. We provide the real story behind the headlines by talking to global decision makers and influential figures. This is The Agenda. Hello and welcome to The Agenda. I'm Stephen Cole, hunting the unicorn. This week, we're examining the rise of the billion-dollar startup. Every startup company launches knowing there is a 70 to 80% chance of it folding within five years. But every startup also has a dream the dream of becoming a unicorn. The term coined in 2013 by venture capitalist Aileen Lee to describe any privately held startup worth over a billion dollars. Right now, there are just under a thousand such companies worldwide, a number that has grown substantially in the past five years in spite of the economic impact of the COVID pandemic. Indeed, 75% of the world's unicorns have joined the club since 2019. So, if you're an investor hunting the next unicorn, where should you be looking? In terms of sectors, fintech should be top of your list. Over a fifth of all unicorns operate in this space, closely followed by internet software and services, e-commerce and direct-to-consumer and AI. And in terms of location, perhaps unsurprisingly, it's the US and China that dominate, representing 51% and 18.1% of all unicorn companies, with India a rather distant third with 5.4%. The world's most valuable unicorn is ByteDance, the Chinese tech company behind TikTok, amongst other brands. And with a valuation of $140 billion, it was the only known Hectacorn, a startup worth over $100 billion, until it was joined by Elon Musk's SpaceX in October 2021. But as ever, there can be a downside. Look at Theranos. Once a health tech unicorn valued at over $9 billion, which turned out to be worth nothing. Or WeWork, now worth around $5 billion. A far cry from the initial $47 billion valuation placed on it when it planned to float in 2019. Joining me now from Oslo to discuss the rise of the unicorn is Kristin Skogen-Lund, CEO of digital brand company Shipstead and the president of the European Tech Alliance. Kristin, last year the European Tech Alliance announced plans to double the number of European uh, unicorns by 2030. Why is that important? Well, it is important to, to grow the European tech sector because, you know, this is the future and we need to have a strong European tech sector, both to create economic growth and employment, but also to make sure that we have good European-based services in this space then I think it's not necessarily the unicorns as such, but you could say that, you know, the creation of unicorns, unicorns is like a sign that you succeed in creating new and scalable companies. So I think that that's the point with that statement. And what, what is the, um, or who are the main competitors for the European tech sector? You know, the, the, the European Tech Alliance represents uh, companies across actually quite a lot of sectors. I mean, we have tech in common, but in many different uh, sectors and, and also from different geographic re uh, regions of Europe. So I guess the answer to that is that you have a lot of competitors. But of course, I think we, we are all faced with uh, a, a lot of large, uh, large concentration of, of uh, let's say, 
market uh, power and dominance in a few global players. So I think we share that most, you know, those golfers will be strong competitors of, of most of our members. Okay, so tell us how you plan to double the number of European unicorns in, what, the next decade? Yeah, I mean, you know, that is a job that needs to be done by the entrepreneurs and the companies themselves, obviously. It's nothing an alliance can go in and, and, and do for our members. But what we can do is to make sure that the conditions in Europe are as favorable as they can be for people who have good ideas so they can actually succeed. And I believe that what, regulation What do you mean by that? Do you mean making more venture capital available or creating the conditions no. right for the entrepreneurs? Yes, I mean, if, for example, regulations, you know, we need to have predictable and good regulation. I think we all share very much an ambition that tech shall be for good. I mean, tech shall help solve society's uh, problems and not uh, strengthen the ones we already have. So I think it's really important that we have good regulation where we have fair competition, where you cannot, uh, for example, do self preferencing if you already have a dominant position which will hamper new entrants in a market that's one important aspect another important aspect is that we have a, a safe internet where you have quite you know where you have strict rules for what is allowed and what's not allowed and to take down harmful content etc things like that so what's so, your what's you your know, view we, on on uh, elon musk taking over twitter <laughs> Well, I think uh, it's yet another example of a lot of power being concentrated in, in you know, in, in this case, in a, in a single person's hand. So uh, that's why, and I'm not casting judgment on Elon Musk. I mean, he, he might, you know, turn out to be an excellent owner of Twitter, but, but we need governmental institutions who have clear regulations and rules for how the tech space shall work. And it, it is particularly important because we have such power uh, concentrated in a very few people's hands. But back to your question about how we want European tech su to succeed, so I, I believe regulation is important. I believe the European Union has taken a very important role also globally in trying to set out modern adjusted regulations in this space, which is in very rapid development. As we know, I think both the Digital Markets Act and Services Act are very good examples of their efforts. Uh, but it's also about, uh, it's about capital, it, it, it is about talent, it is about being attractive for the best brains to want to dedicate themselves to entrepreneurship within this sector and to base it in Europe and make sure that we can have successful companies stemming out of our region. Isn't there a risk that greater regulation will stifle entrepreneurship? Yes, it is. Uh, and that's why you need to uh, cooperate. You need to have sometimes like more of a sandbox approach where you try to cooperate uh, between business and the regulators in order to find the best way uh, forward because things are developing so rapidly and our political processes, they take time. So you can often end up in unintended consequences if you don't make sure that you go hand in hand in this development. Right, so a softly, softly attitude. Are, are there, I wonder, specific areas of the tech world um, that your scheme is planning to target? FinTech, AI, for example, something like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we are really uh, uh, covering a broad, a broad, uh, you know, sense of, of of areas, and I think what I just spelled out, you know, in terms of fair 
competition and proportionate regulation, et cetera, it is, you know, it, it's equally necessary for all sectors. But of course, you have certain uh, areas that are in strong development right now, AI being, being uh, one of them. And then I think it's important to also say that, you know, when I say that we need fair competition, fairness is not necessarily sameness. And I think that's sometimes part of the problem that you try to solve you know, the whole sector's issues with one type of regulation, but the sector is basically a multitude of different companies and, and, and subsectors. So that's another challenge here that you, you know, you can't necessarily have a one size fits all solution to this. We talked about competitors for Europe and the, the, the biggest number of unicorns are in China and the US, aren't they? But Europe is catching up. Do you see your role as, as forcing Europe, forcing the pace, forcing the acceleration so that one day the European unicorns are leading the world? Absolutely. I mean, that would that would be great. And of course, China and the U.S. have the advantage of having very a very large and a quite homogeneous home market. Europe well, your is a your large growth is already twice as fast as the United States. So how do you yes, keep, which, which is, is great. great, which is great, but because how do you keep that going? How do you sustain that? Yeah, and I think, you know, I was going to say that part of our issue is fragmentation. And I think that Europe is becoming better at being less fragmented. You know, we need to have, uh, you know, need to create scale in a, in, a, in a larger way. So that's great. And I think, I think also there is a rising awareness in Europe that, you know, we want to have products and services that are, you know, more European based so we can actually uh, cater even better to European consumers needs. And I think that that's a that's a good driver and motivation both for entrepreneurs and, and for our authorities and regulatory bodies. And I think there is a good um, and sensible cooperation and sentiment. And in the European Union, there is a strong awareness of the need to grow this sector further. And I think we start to see uh, the results of that. Uh, if you say regulation is perhaps the biggest challenge facing the tech industry, what are the other problems do you see facing European unicorns? Uh, I mean, obviously... Especially uh, in Europe, the, the, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the digital world is is borderless, right? So, so of course, uh, competition from from elsewhere naturally, and and you know we have we have already seen quite a lot of that. I think we we need to make sure that uh, you know that Europe can be cutting edge in certain technologies that we can really lead the way and and uh, and really have this, let's say purpose-driven approach of making sure that we develop technology that helps society solve their issues rather than strengthening the ones we have. Lastly, um, I'm wondering, we've talked about Europe, European unicorns, Chinese, American. Uh, is Europe well-placed for any particular sector, do you think, for unicorns to develop? Where's Europe strongest in the world? You're, you, oh, you look as though you're question. looking up to the heavens for inspiration there, Ingrid. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, look, I think, uh, you know, I, I think we have, uh, you know, we have a, you know, what we have is that we have a very well-educated population and we have a lot of well-functioning societies in, in Europe. That means that I would argue that European media, you know, media-based services are very strong, consumer information, uh, consumer comparison services, price comparison, aggregators, you know, these type of services have gained good ground and I think that's an area of strength uh, in Europe. 
then I think we uh, hopefully will show that we will be globally competitive when it comes to important things for the future, like fintech and like, you know, and like AI driven services. Kristin Skogenund, many thanks for talking to us here on the agenda. Thank you. As we've heard, the number of unicorn companies has skyrocketed in the past few years. But just why is that? And where should the smart investor be looking to put their money? Joining me now is a man who should know, having turned a $2 million investment in Skype into $200 million and an $8 million investment in Wix.com into $700 million. The co-founder and CEO of venture capital firm Mangrove Capital Partners, Mark Toulouse. Mark, unicorn companies are becoming increasingly commonplace. What do you put that down to? I think, you know, we've, we've glorified the status of what it is to be a unicorn. And it's, of course, one milestone for any company being valued at a billion dollars, pounds, euro. But we've really glorified that status. And I think that's an unfortunate event. Um, and in doing in glorifying it, of course, everybody strives to become that. Um, and, and, and that may or may not be interesting, but, but in, in glorifying it, I think we, we make it the desire that everybody shoots for. And, and I think, you know, unfortunately, the status of unicorn um, doesn't last forever. And so it feels to me a little bit, uh, to use perhaps a, a sports analogy, is you qualify your team for the FA Cup final and you're celebrating before you actually play the final. And I feel that this, unfortunately, what's happened with, 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 with unicorns is we're celebrating this list that's getting bigger and bigger every year. Um, and unfortunately, you know, they haven't played the final yet. The final, in my mind, is either, you know, you get sold or bought by somebody or you take your company public, ultimately. But so the status of unicorn, I think, is just a step. And sadly, we've, we've glorified it, in my opinion, at least to excess. Yeah, glorified to excess because the business world does seem to be obsessed with unicorn companies, doesn't it? Well, of course, you know, as investors, our single purpose uh, of existence is to make money on behalf of our own investors. And, and that unicorn status allows us to demonstrate to them that, hey, we're, we're heading in the right direction. Um, of course, the press also likes to talk about it because it glorifies individuals. Uh, you know, they've achieved something that's interesting. And so there's, I think we've all gotten together and, and made this happen. And I think at the beginning it was interesting when it was new. Now it's, I think, becoming excessive. And as I said, it's a bit like playing the FA Cup final and, and celebrating. <laughs> well, we actually win. That, that must be a good thing, though, celebrating success. We, we, we love nothing more than that for as long as it doesn't become the single point of success celebration. Right. Um, as I said, the, the unicorn status comes, it goes. Many companies have had it, have lost it, have never gotten it back. Um, you know, if you look at many of the ones that are currently in that unicorn list that you have, many will likely never ultimately be sold for anything near that or will likely not go public. And so, you know, you also have a lot of disappointment that comes post that if you're not able to maintain that. You know, who remembers the losing team in any FA Cup final? Nobody, right? And so it's fine to celebrate, and I'm the biggest proponent of celebration, but celebrating milestones are key, uh, as opposed to this particular one event as the single event that's, that, that defines success. It doesn't, right? It's an element of what you're trying to do. I, I saw uh, what I thought was an incredible statistic the other day, that despite COVID, uh, more than 75% uh, of all current unicorns have joined the club since 2019. What, what do you put that down to? 
Well, I think it's it's quite quite simple, right? Um, public markets exploded between 19 and 21. Um, and we use public markets and technology as a proxy for our own non-public companies. And so as the public markets went up, you know, valuations naturally followed in the private markets. Um, and so it's not unsurprising that so many were created when we've had essentially the biggest, you know, boom public markets in, in a long, long time. So, of course, the public markets are now down significantly, and we're going to see some of that negativity hit our companies, including many of the unicorns that are on that list. So, so you know, the, the, these companies also go through boom and bust periods as, as investors get more or less excited about the markets. Uh, we, of course, follow the public markets, and as a result of all of that, we get good periods and bad periods of unicorn births, right? 19 to 21 was a particularly fruitful period for us. Well, before that, in, in 2015, you rather famously said the majority of startups claiming to be worth over a billion dollars were, in fact, fakies. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, I, I mean that ultimately they will not be sold or taken public for anywhere near that, that, uh, that amount of money, right? And one has to always remember that uh, as we value, the way we value these companies in the, pub, in the private markets is you get one investor who comes in, says, hey, you know, I'm going to buy 5% of the company and then or 10 maybe. And based on that, I'm going to value the rest of the company at that same price. And, and so, you know, it's a bit in the eyes of the beholder, so to speak, in sense of what they see in value today. Uh, ultimately, when you do have to graduate out of being a private company and you go public, you get a lot more scrutiny, a lot more people looking at what the price means. And so I think what I said in 2015 was really to say, hey, you know, we can celebrate unicorns. It's important, but many of them really just don't have the substance or the business to be ultimately very successful. I feel, by the way, the same way about the 2019-21 vintages. Is there going to be a lot of those companies who, you know, fundamentally don't have the business values, propositions, capabilities to sustain what it takes, I think, to be a long-term unicorn in the public markets. You were also quite cynical about fintech. And given that fintech made up, made up about 20% of unicorns, that, that's, that's, that, that is dismissive, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, I mean, of course, hindsight is, as we say, 2020. <laughs> uh, and we have to make predictions that probably wasn't one of my best ones. But I would say in my defense, if I felt I had to do that, is that if you look at it, um, I think I was really referring at the time to consumer facing fintech, i.e., you know, banks and things like that. And, and at the time, I felt like I would never give my money to a startup. Right. I'd always go give it to Barclays or somebody else. It just felt like it was safer there. Um, most of the fintech success stories to date are companies that actually what I what I would refer to as infrastructure companies who power how business is done. And they've been very successful. And, you know, funnily enough, uh, my latest unicorn is actually a London-based company, which is oh, in the really? financial service space. So, you know, ah. uh, you know fools, never ch fools need to change their opinions occasionally as well, right? Well, I'm sure you're not a fool. Far from it. Um, what sector do you think is best suited for unicorns, if there uh, is it, one? Yeah, well, I mean... The, I think the question is one of timing. When is the sector ready for disruption? Um, and so a lot of the work that we do at our firm is, is, is taking out a crystal ball and saying, you know, what's going to be hot or hip in 10 years? Right now, we think uh, healthcare is one of the great areas where there's big opportunities to disrupt the existing system, right? I mean, across Europe, <clears throat> we spend about 12% of our GDP on healthcare. 
Uh, in the U.S., it's 17 percent. Our population is not getting any younger. And so the only way we fundamentally change that is by applying technology to trying to solve some of these issues. Um, and so I think where we're spending most of our time is in that entire healthcare area. How can software, how can the Internet just make it easier, better, cheaper, right, for, 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 for people, for consumers, but also for prescribers, governments and things like that to operate. So that, for me, is one of the really, really great areas of opportunity. If I uh, read um, the details correctly, you look at about 2,000 potential startup deals every year and invest yeah. in about half a dozen. How do you yeah. pare it down? You said right at the beginning that some of it is luck. You don't take a pin, do you, in those 2,000? What do you look for? No. Luck has to do with more the operating side of it and the environment. I think the choice side is, you know, we out of 2000 will make six investments and be wrong on half of those six, you know, so it is it is a tough it is a tough game. We, we have very definite, very defined processes, how we go about it. Each person in the firm will think about it in different ways. You know, I tend to be much more intuitive about it. I meet an entrepreneur. I don't like the idea. I walk away quite quickly. Some of my partners are much more engaged in looking at it. But, you know, the process ultimately is how you get from 2000 down to 500 in a rather quick way. Then how do you go from 500 down to 100 in, in a more, in a, in, a, in a more, I would say, scientific method. And then you go from 100 down to five. And there's a lot of factors that play in there. The number one factor always in all these investments is, you know, what is the quality of the entrepreneur that you're going to the back. Right. How, you're backing the human idea, the, 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 the man who's driving it. Correct. I mean, you know, the cemetery is full of great ideas, right? And, <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's all about the ability of a person or a team to take an idea and, and just drive it. Look, it's, it's a hard slug being an entrepreneur, right? Entrepreneurs are always blessed with self-belief or, or the successful ones, in, in my experience. Yeah. But what yeah. about politics? Is there a risk there as well? Because governments around the world don't like tech firms getting too big now, do they? So <laughs> is, is that a problem? Well, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric out there. I, I spend very little of my time worrying about that rhetoric. I think that there's many more politicians who would love to see the, the, the startup community grow bigger um, or, or provide more jobs, uh, more opportunities. So I worry more about that side of the equation. And there we have a equal amount of very positive politicians around the world saying, you know, this is the path to growth. Right. Um, starters, it, believers, growers, inventors, that matters more than anything else, I think. So are there parts of the world investors should be looking more at than other parts of the world? You know, I, I started my firm 20 years ago. I would have said to you that the U.S. was the unique place where really the action was happening. Uh, in 2022, I'd say, you know, the U.K. definitely has a super, super vibrant uh, ecosystem of, of great people doing great things. Uh, Israel is just rocking, of course. Um, startup nation, the name sticks stands for itself. Europe is beginning to see a number of pockets emerge. I, I think the internet has really democratized the ability to start and launch a company. So you can pretty much do it from anywhere um, and take on the world. So, so yeah, I think talent is the question, right? The, where does the talent come from? And, and there, you know, there's obviously more entrepreneurs in, in, in the US, now more in Europe. Um, but I think the world is your oyster if you're an entrepreneur. Southeast Asia is booming. You know, they have GDP growth of 7 to 8% per year. Um, their middle class is up and coming. So I'd be looking at some of those areas out there to, to, be, to, be, to, be, to, be, to be trying to do some stuff there.
Mark, you know, lastly, you know there are many good companies out there, but what is the difference? What, what suddenly turns a good company into a great company? Well, I, I think, you know, are you able to truly find a fit that takes away any of the excuses to use the product? And I think very often as companies go through these product development cycles, you know, there's always a little friction in using a product or buying a product or whatever. And I think if you can really take that away, you know, Skype, my, my first big success was a very good example of that. But, but there's many, many others out there. You know, people are using uh, Netflix because it's just so easy to use from anywhere. I think, you know, good to great is as much about product. But as I said, again, it's, it's really about individuals who are powering that company. And I, I, I would say that's really what makes it great is, is, is that they're so passionate about what they're doing that you look at it and go, wow, that thing. Yeah. And, then, and then last but not least is timing. You know, you could invest in certain sectors and unfortunately you're too early and the market just wasn't ready and, and you know, that you need a bit of luck. That's what I mean by luck, right? You're absolutely right. It is a combination of all those factors, isn't it? Um, Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the agenda. I'm most grateful. Thank you very much, Stephen. All the best. But for now, from me, Stephen Cole, and all the Agenda team here in London, it's goodbye.